Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, the global order was poised for some disruption. Global institutions were seemingly getting weaker. The United States under the Trump administration was abdicating its traditional role as a global leader. And China was most definitely flaunting its rising power status on the global stage. Now, in the midst of a pandemic, all of these trends are still very much present but also accelerating, according to my guest today, Ian Bremer. Ian Bremer is president of the Eurasia Group and president of G Zero Media. And in our conversation, we discuss the big geopolitical shifts that are being exposed and hastened by the COVID-19 pandemic. This includes what Ian Bremer calls the great decoupling of China and the United States. This is the idea that economic and technological interdependence between the United States and China is giving way to the creation of two separate systems that are often in competition with each other. We discuss that trend at length, as well as how political disruptions and the coming election in the United States will impact geopolitics. This is a great conversation. I think you'll like it. At one point during the interview, I reference a report that the Eurasia Group put out forecasting great global risks in 2020, and I will put a link to that report on globaldispatchespodcast.com so you can check it out. And just a couple of quick announcements before we start. The first is something I'm really excited about. In collaboration with the Leadership Group for Industry Transition and the Stockholm Environment Institute, I am hosting a live virtual taping of the podcast on April 29th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, which is 1 p.m. Central European Standard Time. The conversation will focus on how to make the COVID-19 recovery sustainable, just, and resilient. To that end, there are a number of great speakers lined up, including Isabella Lovin, who is the Minister of Environment and Climate and Deputy Prime Minister of Sweden, Henrik Henriksson, who is the CEO of the company Scania, Rachel Kite, who is the Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University, and Michael Lazarus, who is a Senior Scientist and U.S. Center Director for the Stockholm Environment Institute. It is a heavy-hitting discussion and panel, and you are cordially invited to participate in the live stream of this event. Please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com and register. I will also post the registration link in the description field of this podcast episode. I'm really excited and hope you can participate. Thank you in advance. Now, here is my conversation with Ian Bremer. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization 
hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I wrote about the G-Zero world um, some eight years ago, uh, the idea that we were moving uh, towards a geopolitical environment that didn't have leadership, a vacuum, uh, not the United States, that America wouldn't want to play that role, but no one else would be interested or capable. And so, you know, that it's a little less obvious that that's happening when there's no crisis. This is our first G-Zero crisis, right? And so um, I'm, I guess I would say I'm not surprised at the extraordinary lack of coordinated response to this very global crisis, global pandemic, global economic crisis, no leadership, not from the United States on the global level, but not really from anyone else either. And it's showing the institutions as being a lot weaker than people thought they were. So, I mean, I guess you'd say if there's it's anything that I felt like I was comfortable that I was going to get right, it was probably that. I mean, get plenty of things wrong, but that, that, the, 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 where the geopolitical order was, was heading uh, I, I think uh, I think that's something I've been thinking about for a long time. Like, do you think that this moment is accelerating that trend in in any way, or just sort of exposing it? I mean, one thing that I've noticed, um, you know, in different aspects, not necessarily in, in geopolitics, because I haven't dug that deeply into it yet on the podcast. But I'm curious to learn from you. But in other areas, like human rights, uh, that I've explored, you know, what I've seen uh, is this sort of acceleration of trends that already existed, like democratic backsliding just happening faster now. You, example of of Hungary, maybe. Um, is forefront. But, you know, is that sort of trend towards G0 happening faster? Or has it just been exposed more readily for us to see? No, I'm, I, I think it's accelerating. I think it's a very good way of putting it, because you see it in many ways. Um, you know, for example, the role of technology in displacing traditional non-digital economy, uh, the, uh, the role of inequality and the hollowing out of the middle and the working class as the fourth industrial revolution becomes a post-industrial revolution. The, um, the existential challenges of North versus South inside Europe and, and the ability of the European Union to function effectively given those challenges, all of those things have been accelerated greatly uh, by the coronavirus crisis. And the biggest piece of that, of course, is the geopolitical order itself, the G0, uh, which um, again, w- has been exposed, and a lot more people are talking about it now, but has also been accelerated because the the desire of the United States to focus at home in this environment, going after the World Health Organization, President Trump, I mean, in the middle of a pandemic, right, is a that's a very G0 thing to do. And the fight between the Americans and the Chinese at a time when we really need much better coordination between the two countries um, I mean, you know, we really need Chinese transparency with the rest of the world on what's happening in terms of the data um, and their cases. And we're just not getting it right. That's a real problem. That's it's intensifying. It's escalating because of this. Uh, so in January, you put out a forecast of you know the key risks in, in 2020, the key ge- geopolitical risks of, of the coming year, as I think you do every year. And you recently sort of released an updated version of that, explaining and exploring how the COVID-19 pandemic is kind of layering on top of it. Um, your 
top risk, which was you know, interesting and kind of disconcerting for me, was uh, questions over the legitimacy of the election here in the United States. That's a key political risk. As you explain, you know, no matter who wins, a good chunk of the country will view the results as illegitimate. So how does the COVID-19 outbreak layer on top of that and what the international implications of a fraught U.S. election? Um, the, the way it plays is that the actual process of the election is far more challenging because of social distancing from coronavirus in November. We will still be socially distancing in November. Like that, that, that's a guarantee, right? So uh, that means turnout is going to be depressed if you hold elections the way you would normally hold them. Uh, that's good for Trump. Uh, it's bad for Biden because Trump's base is much more excited about Trump than Biden's base is for Biden. Biden has a broader base uh, than Trump does. Um, and Trump's already made clear that he doesn't want it to be easy to vote. He doesn't want mail-in ballots for everybody, right? So you've seen that already with the Wisconsin um, primary, and you're going to see it happen. It's going to play out um, over the course of um, this election season. I should say for international listeners, the Wisconsin primary refers to you know, the elections that happened in Wisconsin a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the top of the ticket was a primary, but there's also a key state Supreme Court election happening. And it was you know, ill-advised to mount an election at that time, let's say. Uh, ill-advised in terms of the well-being of the people that would turn out to vote. Well-advised um, if you were trying to suppress uh, the numbers of people to turn out. And that's exactly the debate that's going to happen in November, uh, and it's going to happen uh, before you even talk about Russians intervening in the elections or politicized investigations against Biden as the nominee, all of these things that would make the election feel rigged. And another reason why it's important is because usually Congress having problems getting things done, you know, is not such a disaster, right? I mean, govern the governor's best, governs least, we usually say, and it's just stay out of our way, right? But right now, we really need Congress. I mean, we've got $2.2 trillion already in, uh, in, in, in bailout, in relief, uh, that uh, Mnuchin, the Secretary of Treasury, and the Speaker of the House, Pelosi, put together in very short order. They did it well. But if you have a contested election, and you're not sure who the president is after the election occurs, and you desperately need more money from Congress because the economy is still facing serious uphill battles and getting restarted at that point, uh, that's going to be very, very disruptive, not just in the United States, but also the rest of the world, which is looking to the Americans as the largest economy as kind of their polar north. So I, I, I do think that this is, uh, this is going to be a big challenge. So you've already alluded to this, but you know it seems that this is just a moment that is exposing certain trend lines in the U.S.-China relationship. Um, one of those is what you call the the great decoupling. Can you just explain what you mean by that phrase, and then we'll we'll kind of talk about you know what's happening in terms of it uh, and its relationship with COVID. The the trust level between the United States and China is zero. And, and that's true for both sides. Um, but we have not had much of a fight with the Chinese heretofore. And a big reason for that is because of the interdependence between the two countries, the economic interdependence, the tourism, the technology, the fact the Chinese own so much U.S. paper, all of those things. And at the beginning of this year, 
we pointed out the great decoupling that was already starting to happen, specifically in the tech sector, moving away from a world wide web where everyone gets access to the same group of companies to one where the Chinese have tech firms, the Americans have tech firms, and they do not coincide. Amazon, not allowed in the U in China, Google, um, Twitter, uh, China with Huawei, ZTE, those firms not allowed in the U.S., and the Americans telling allies, don't you dare use them. That is now expanding significantly to other pieces of the relationship on the back of the coronavirus crisis. So, so like what? Well, uh, a big piece uh, is the fact that the Chinese have this uh, stranglehold, uh, or if you want to say very strong position, depending on who you are, um, in medical supplies. I mean, we get masks from China. We get PPE from China. We get pharmaceuticals from China. Well, I mean, that, that, that's going to be seen to be unacceptable uh, going forward uh, to Americans that want to ensure national security resilience for the next pandemic. Uh, you have American companies that have taken advantage of just-in-time supply chains for manufacturing, uh, for example. Um, and that means that it's very efficient. You don't need to have stuff in warehouses. You can produce at the lowest possible cost but it's very able, easily able to be disrupted, as we've seen with coronavirus when the global supply chain shuts down. So a lot of companies are going to be now moving supply chain closer to where the consumption is. American companies, American consumers, increasingly not going to be making their stuff out of China. And then you have the bailouts that are coming. Massive bailouts can be required for lots of companies across American industry, and there'll be conditionality. And when you've got 15 20% U.S. unemployment, that conditionality is going to include make sure you employ Americans and not Chinese. That's an America first bailout. So all of those things are going to lead to less resilience, excuse me, more resilience in the supply chain, less efficiency, um, and less interdependence. Plus, are the Chinese going to want to send as many students to American schools when we're blaming them uh, for coronavirus? I mean, you see the hearings that are coming down the pike about the Chinese original sin of covering up this virus, the human-to-human transmissions for the first month, which they did do. Um, and, but, but that's going to get massively politicized in the run-up to the election, and it's going to make Chinese feel less welcome in the United States. All of this means, again, the trust wasn't there before. It wasn't there under Obama. It's not there under Trump. But if you get rid of the interdependence, the potential for confrontation between these two countries goes up quite a bit. What is the last, you know, 20, 30 years of interdependence of, you know, a global supply chain of, you know, a U.S. economy and a Chinese economy inextricably woven together? Was that sort of like an accident of history? I, I don't think the globalization was an accident of history um, because uh, as long as, um, I mean, the, the natural um, uh the natural drive towards profitability of companies in a, in a free market system, whether it's well-regulated or badly regulated, will be towards global markets. And theories of competitive advantage in economics will tell you that in a globalized environment, everyone, even if no one has great efficiency, even if no one um, is, is best at producing everything, um, the, excuse me, let me do it again. Uh, according to economic theory, competitive advantage will tell you that even if some countries are bad at producing everything, 
they're comparatively better at some things than other things, and that means that they will do better in a globalized environment. Now, there's a lot of people that get displaced from globalization, but since you have more money in the system, as long as the regulatory environment works well, your ability to ensure that all boats rise um, is improved by that. And, and indeed, largely speaking, that worked. I mean, think about the rise of the global middle class over the last 40 years. Think about the billions of people that were taken out of poverty, the most extraordinary thing, achievement of humanity in our history. Um, think about uh, how life expectancy has increased and how many uh, kids, 90% of all one-year-olds around the world get immunized. I mean, all of these things that would not have happened if it wasn't for globalization. There's a lot of gravitational pull towards that. But it did imply that the politics uh, would not interfere. And um, we had a system uh, post-World War II where the largest countries in the world post-Marshall Plan and the rest, were pretty aligned in terms of their political and economic systems. That's not true anymore with the rise of China, but they're not aligning towards becoming free market or liberal democracy. And it's also not true because a bunch of democracies are themselves getting hollowed out through inequality. And so their systems, their established systems, feel more rigged by many of the people that live there. And that creates opposition to open borders and free trade and the rest. So I wouldn't call it a historical aberration, but I would say that policy mistakes, short-termism on the part of leaders taking advantage of globalization for themselves, but not for all of their constituents, uh, led to the unsustainability of the system as it has been functioning. If we are you know, in the process, an accelerating process of, of a system in which interdependence as it, you know, is no longer de rigueur. What are some sort of early indicators you'll be looking towards in the next, say, months or weeks that suggest to you how fast this process is happening? And, you know, sort of are, are there moments or events or likelihoods or outcomes that you'll be looking towards to suggest to you, you know, how this decoupling is, is proceeding? I mean, you know, if you think about when the South Koreans and the Chinese were fighting, uh, and that was, uh, if you remember, over the decision of the South Koreans to accept um, a, uh, a missile tracking system, uh, defense system um, that was uh, on the border with North Korea that would also expose some Chinese intelligence. Um, the, uh, the, there, there was a lot of anti South Korean sentiment that was ginned up by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, you had stores uh, that were firebombed. You had some injuries, that sort of thing. Tourism, the Chinese suddenly state uh, tourist agencies started recommending that it wasn't safe to go to South Korea. I'd be looking for that kind of behavior in China. In the United States, I would look for the Americans moving beyond just the blaming of the Chinese for Wuhan flu, as Pompeo and Trump have been saying, though not consistently, and instead actually starting to see that there are policies that are being put in place um, to make Huawei unfunctional as a company, which are being debated right now, for example. If that, that goes through, I'd be looking at that um, to, um, uh, to, to, her, to, to really disincent American companies um, from having large footprints in China. Hate crimes um, against Chinese living in the United States 
and uh, and how that's responded to by local law enforcement and uh, by the media and and by and whether Trump ignores it or whether he does anything with it. Um, I'm already seeing I mean, one thing that's really interesting: early ad buys in swing states uh, by by the Trump election uh, 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 group um, are are um, naming uh, Joe Biden uh, hashtag Beijing Biden. Um, <laughs> You know, I missed that. That is what just happened yesterday. Yeah, but that that's an that's an early indicator that 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 we've got a problem, right? So, I mean, as we move to this less interdependent world in which you know the U.S. and Chinese economies are less linked, um, to what extent does that give space for conflict between the the two countries? Well, it, it means. But the likelihood of conflict is higher. Um, we, we, you know, when when the and there are so many places where you can imagine real problems. I mean, you look at uh, Hong Kong, and when the Chinese kicked the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Washington Post journalists out, they also kicked them out of Hong Kong and Macau. That goes against basic law. There, the potential for tougher national security rulings by the Chinese in Hong Kong and local demonstrations that the Americans might support. That could be interesting. Taiwan with a more nationalist president in charge with the Americans going after Taiwanese companies that are doing too much business in mainland China, those companies perhaps moving out um, that, and, and, and the, always the potential for us military sale uh, sales to cause trouble. Uh, Chinese putting uh, their own military material through the Straits. There are lots of ways that you could see this conflict escalate. And the incentives to keep the conflict limited go down when we don't care as much about China. Right now, Trump is going after the World Health Organization, right? He's saying um, that these guys are culpable, they were covering up, um, and so we're not going to provide any more funding for them. We're suspending funding. Now, it's fairly clear that if you're angry at anyone, it's not the WHO, which was just scared of angering China. It was China. I mean, they're the ones that covered up the data. It's their data. They're the ones that are responsible for the original pandemic. So if Trump should go after anyone, it's not the WHO. But the good thing about going after the WHO, if you're Trump, is all that means is you're hurting poor countries that really need the WHO. And he doesn't care about poor countries. But if you go after China, well, then... You know, what if they decide they're not going to send you the masks and and the hospital gowns that you need from them? So suddenly you really don't want to hurt the Chinese much because it's going to hurt you. But if we no longer need that stuff from China, if we no longer care as much about how the Chinese are doing, and in fact, if Chinese growth suddenly matters less to us and is seen as more of a threat than an opportunity, well, the likelihood of conflict clearly goes way up. Um, so it seems to me that one unknown factor going forward, both, you know, geopolitically, but also, you know, domestically in a lot of countries that will in a way sort of inevitably impact geopolitics is the degree to which just basic, you know, social disruption uh, becomes a, a, a fact of life. I mean, here in the United States, you know, we're facing massive unemployment. Our healthcare system is in tattered. People are going to be, you know, laid off. More and more people are going to be laid off. You have this just sense that like life is going to be severely disrupted. To what extent do you think we're going to have like just massive social disruption in a way that could affect geopolitics? Um, it is unclear 
to what extent social disruption in the United States, uh, it really changes geopolitics much. Uh, I mean, you can make the argument that it's because of the disenfranchisement in the U.S. that you got Trump, right? And and why Bernie Sanders did so well and why Joe Biden is going to be tacking to the left because he desperately needs Sanders' support in order and, it, and, his, uh, and his supporters to come out and vote for him in order to beat Trump. So there is that. Um, but let's keep in mind that an, an astonishing level of inequality in the United States has been growing. I mean, after 2008, 2009, we had the Occupy Wall Street movement. There were a lot of people that were disenfranchised in 2008, 2009. And a year later, we stopped talking about them. We didn't do a damn thing. Um, and that's because the United States is in Tunisia. That's because these people, even when they're disenfranchised, are not actually starving. They're not... It's not like it, it's not like what happened in the Arab Spring, where people were, were willing to risk their lives in in violent demonstration to change the system because the alternatives were so dangerous for them. Uh, the developed world is much wealthier and therefore much more resilient, uh, and it allows for longer term erosion, but also keeps the system in place. I mean, Trump doesn't threaten democracy. Um, he drives a lot of people crazy, but he's not about to become a dictator, even if he wants to be, because he can't, because the institutions are too strong. So even though we're going to see structurally much more inequality in the next three years in the United States, and I hope that leads to strengthening of the social safety net, I hope that leads to treating people in the gig economy uh, as if they have, you know, sort of rights, fundamental rights to, to basic, basic social welfares and needs. Um, even if it doesn't, it is not clear to me that that suddenly creates the kind of social discontent that really changes the system. Uh, all right. Well, Ian, thank you so much for your time. Sure. My pleasure, Mark. Good talking. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ian Bremer. That was great. Appreciated it. And, and again, uh, thank you to all of you who are premium subscribers. I so appreciate your support now more than ever, really. Um, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I hope it is a worthwhile investment uh, for you as well. And I suspect it is. I hear from you all the time uh, about how you are enjoying these bonus episodes, which are, are really evergreen conversations. They're not really news pegged to anything. I basically just ask uh, people about their life and career and the interesting things that their life and careers intersected with on the world stage. Thank you so much. Go to patreon.com slash global dispatches to become a premium subscriber. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.